I want to share a story from my own life. I came to faith midway through my senior year in high school, 1979, long time ago. And soon after I came to faith, I dedicated my life to serve the Lord full time. And so I decided to change trajectory of my life. And so I went to four years of Bible college. Got married then to Gail right after that. Figured that I needed more education, so I went to four more years of seminary. And then I thought, well, I'm a little not very green with ministry practice. So I went back to my home church and served there as an assistant pastor for four years. And I thought, now I'm ready. I'm ready for the next move now. I am fully prepared. I'm ready to go. And so I put my name out there for positions in the pastorate. And lo and behold, the church in St. Louis decided to give me a try. So the chairman of a search committee of a church down near St. Louis uh, started the interview process. I went down there a couple times, and they extended a call to me to become their senior pastor. And it was a church that had been hurting for a little while. In fact, another Carlism, uh, the pastor before me was caught pedidlin. <laughs> so they had to let him go. And so I knew the church had some trust issues with leadership, and rightly so. And I was decided, I knew that going in, I'm going to be faithful, I'm going to be, again, uh, loving them, I'm going to be allowing them uh, some hurt because of that wound. And about six months in, I think things are starting to go pretty smoothly. They know me, I'm getting to know them. And lo and behold, about six months in, I get a letter on my desk without even the courtesy of a personal conversation. The chairman of the search committee, and now he was the chairman of the board as well, decided he wanted out and he left the church. Six months in, and I'm thinking, oh my. And I was just getting ready to leave that next day for a church convention a couple states away and take a few days of vacation. And I'm thinking to myself, oh boy, what's going to happen when I get back? If the chairman of the board and the chairman of the one who brought me to this church decides to up and leave, how many is he going to take with him? And I was rightfully so nervous because I felt betrayed. I felt ambushed. I didn't see it coming. And you know, when we think about the movements of God, sometimes they start out rather messy. We think about what happened with the children of Israel on the plains of Moab. Their leader had just disqualified himself, both Moses and Aaron. And now they have to go in with a new guy, Joshua. And they're going to start this whole new movement, and it's messy. And then you come to the end of the Old Testament period, and the nation of Israel has messed up time and time again. God sent them off to Babylon to kind of have a time out. They come back, but now they're in a period of waiting for almost 400 years. Is God with us anymore? And then Christ comes, and he begins. And then, of course, we all know what happens. We celebrate that on Easter week, Holy Week. We think about the fact that he, too, was betrayed. And now they're in this interim period after his resurrection, before the Pentecost, before the church begins. 
And so they know that there's something new happening. There's no, they know something is about to happen because Jesus told them, hey, wait, wait. Not many days from now, you'll receive power. So that's, that's exciting. And so I want us to use the passage this morning from Acts chapter 1. We're starting a series on the book of Acts. And I want us to think about what is it that a community can do while we wait for the next move of God? What is it that we can do to prepare ourselves in that interim? When we know God is about to do something, we don't know what, but we have to wait. What can we do in the interim? And so we are in this period of time between the resurrection and Pentecost. Now, Jesus, let me give you the context of what's happened just before our passage. We're going to look at verses 12 and following this morning. But the immediate context is, after the resurrection, Jesus has been making some appearances for about 40 days. He's shown himself to over 500, Paul says. But he shows up to the disciples. But his message is basically the same all the time. Wait. Wait in Jerusalem. Wait there. And so the disciples, again, as we think about what Acts chapter 1, the first part of that chapter says, it says that Jesus was talking to them about the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples, not always the sharpest knives in the drawer, but they understood that something big was about to happen. And they remember hearing, maybe they had selective hearing, because they missed a lot of what Jesus said, but they heard this, that you 12 are going to sit on 12 thrones in the kingdom. They're thinking, let's get this party started. Let's go. We want this kingdom to happen now. In fact, that's so much on their minds that what do they do? They ask Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Will we get our throne with our known name on it? And you remember what Jesus said to them? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has appointed. But what does he want them to do? Sit on it. Wait, and not many days from now, you shall receive power. Wow, that's a new movement. And then Christ ascended to the Father from the Mount of Olives. And then two men who are there, undoubtedly angels, are there witnessing this and heralding it to the people that are watching this ascension. Hey, just as you see Jesus go up, he's going to come again in like manner. So that's where we're at. But I do want to read one section from the end of the Gospel of Luke because I think it really helps us to prepare contextually for what we're reading here at the end of chapter 1. In Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 49, just listen to this. And he said to them, this is Jesus, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now, he'd been mentioning that all through his ministry, but they weren't, again, selective hearing. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now again, they thought it was all about them. They thought it was all about their 12 thrones, their little kingdom. But Luke is reminding them that Jesus has always had, hey, it's not just the gospel of repentance, but it's also for all nations. And it's going to start where? In Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And that was one of the very important characteristics of an early disciple is that they were an eyewitness to what the Lord had done. And we'll see that in our passage this morning. 
And he said, and behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So something exciting is about to happen, but wait. Wait. Sit. 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 That's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? Now, before we open up the word, I don't know what it is. Whenever I speak at 180, I get the tough passages. <laughs> I think they know in advance to give me these passages. This passage has a number of interpretive issues. And I'm just going to briefly mention a few of them to let you know I'm not worried about them. They all can resolve themselves. But we have this issue of how do we interpret the book of Acts in general? I like to call it the wet cement stage of the early church. There's a lot of things that happen here that are not prescriptive for what, how we should do things today. And we'll see later on this morning that one of the things they did was appoint leaders by casting of dice. Uh, I don't know of churches today that follow that method. But it was used in Acts chapter 1. And there's a number of these kind of things that are done in this infant stage as they're getting established. Remember, they are now trying to get a foothold in the Roman Empire, and there's a lot of things, signs and wonders, that has to happen in order for the gospel to get a good launch. And so things that we sometimes see in the book of Acts are not, again, prescriptive for how we go about doing things today. The big question is often asked, and I would say as I've done my research, is that it's about half and half, whether or not what the disciples did here was a good move or a hasty move. That is, appointing one of the uh, a new man to take Judas's place. And I have to be honest, for a long time, I was one of those that was a little skeptical about whether or not they should have tarried a little bit longer until they had the spirit to make such a big move. But I think now I've come around to where I think they made the right move, and I'll explain why. There's also the challenge apologetically. If you've been around people who are skeptical of the word of God, they always bring up Acts chapter 1 and the fact that Matthew's account of Jesus' death doesn't match Luke's account. Matthew has him hanging himself. Luke has him falling, and his guts spill out. Hate to break it to you, that's the text. Uh, it can be reconciled. I think he hung himself, the rope broke, he fell, and his gut spilled out. Okay, solve that one in two seconds. <laughs> but there is the issue, I'm a teacher of hermeneutics, and I do want to always know how is it that we should apply the word of God. And in this passage, we'll see Peter quote from Psalms. Now, for you Moody students... There's always the challenge of how do we understand how the New Testament people were using the Old Testament. And if I read the text that Peter is quoting from, I wouldn't necessarily see them as predictive prophecy about Judas, but Peter did. And he's using a certain fulfillment technique. Again, I think it's just simply the idea that he's using the Old Testament applicationally to apply it to Judas. And I'll explain more about those psalms when we get to them in the text. But what this passage is not about is how to go about the process of how to select leaders. Again, that was then uh, pre uh, descriptive, not prescriptive. But the question that I want us to consider here this morning is, how can a community prepare for the next move of God? Because here we are in this interim period where the next move of God is about to happen, and we'll see how they handled it and what we can learn from them 
for our church, and for our time. So there's three steps that I think we can take as a community preparing for the next move of God. Number one, preparing for God's next move requires faithfully waiting and depending upon God in prayer. Let me read that again. Preparing for the next movement of God requires faithfully waiting and depending upon God in prayer. Simple. Let's look at the text. Let's read Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, about just over half a mile. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room, maybe even the same place where Jesus had ushered in the Last Supper, and maybe even the same place where in a few days from here, Pentecost is going to happen. But we don't know that for sure. Where they were staying, ah, we see them being obedient, don't we? They said, wait in Jerusalem, and that's where they're at. They're only a half mile away at most, because when the time comes, they want to be there. I think that's why that little insignificant kind of piece of information is shared there, because they didn't stray too far, because they wanted to be in on God's next move. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now, one of the things that is very interesting, and uh, one of the things I've had the joy of, in a sense, seeing more examples of, many of you know I just wrote a book called 14 Fresh Ways to Enjoy the Bible. And now I'm seeing these techniques that I've been talking about all over the place. And one of them is out of order which means things are not always in the same order or the order that you expect. And I think what's happening here is that John gets elevated up until what? Until the second place, where in the other list in the, in the Gospels, he was number four. Andrew was number two. It was Peter and Andrew, their brothers. Then James and John, their brothers. But John gets elevated to number two position. So already we're seeing some movement, and why is that? Because when we read through the whole book of Acts, only Peter, James, and John are going to be really seen doing much in the book of Acts. We don't ever hear much about Andrew or the others. So I think he's promoted, as it were, in this list. Because, stay tuned, John is going to be a critical part of the church. All these, though, were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Devoted, united, in one place, praying. So that's the number one step, is that a community needs to be united faithfully in communal prayer, waiting for God's next move. All right, let's take a look at move number two. What's step number two? And we'll come back and we'll uh, deal with more of these in detail when we try to apply them. But step number two is that in the interim, when a community is waiting for God's next move, what do they need to do? They need to prepare, then requires, preparation requires biblically wrestling with the past. Now, let me explain why I said it that way. Let's read Acts chapter 1, 15 to 20. 
In those days, Peter stood up. He's already a leader. He stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120. 120 was the number of the Sanhedrin. So it seemed to be, okay, this is a legit group. They have a critical mass. It could just mean that we have now seen the church or the community, because it's not the church yet, the community is expanding in size. And he stands up and he says, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit, it's the first mention of the Holy Spirit here in this particular passage, spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Of course, that's the scriptures. Book of Psalms. But who is this Judas guy? He is the one who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He betrayed our Lord. For he was numbered among us and was allotted to share in this ministry. He had a throne with his name on it. Now, again, we have an aside. This is a flashback. This doesn't happen right here. It happened earlier. Again, another out-of-order thing because it's pertinent to make the point here. So we have this parenthetical statement. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Now we know that he had conspired with the chief priests and the religious leaders to rat out Jesus for 30 shekels of silver. He acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, again, graphic here, but I'll explain a little reason why I think we get this graphic. It doesn't say he just died. His gut spilled out. It was gruesome. It was a spectacle. For it became known this was widely known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that that field was called in their own language, Akodama, that is, field of blood. Now, it wasn't a field filled with blood. It was, a, again, a field that was purchased with betraying of blood. And it was also the blood, presumably, of Judas, which was spilled when his guts spilled out. This is a field of blood. And I, I couldn't help myself but also flash back to the early stages of something God was doing with humanity in Genesis chapter 4. When after the fall, the first story we read about in human civilization is about two brothers. And they didn't get along. And Cain killed his brother Abel. And you remember the statement that the text makes? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Folks, there's something about the fact that when violence occurs, we pollute the space. And I think if we're at all concerned about the city of Chicago, we are some bloody fields today too, right? And that's to our shame. That's to, that's to lament this field, nobody would ever occupy it anymore. It became, as we find out, a cemetery where no living person would ever operate in that space again because it was known for death, a place where death occurred. 
For it is written, and now we have the explanation, for it is written in the book of Psalms. We're going to see now the rationale that they had for replacing Judas. They said, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Those are quotations from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Just little phrases pulled out from those two psalms. And if you take the time to read Psalm 69 and 109, you will not see it looking like a prophecy about Judas. But what is Psalm 69 and 109? Psalm 69 is an imprecatory psalm. That is where the psalmist is so hurt that he's crying out for God to vindicate, to do something to the perpetrators of injustice. And so even though Judas's name was not written in terms of a predictive prophecy in Psalm 69, Peter understood it. Hey, here we have the epitome of betrayal and, and criticism against Jesus. Somebody who is an enemy of Jesus, he fits. And so he used Psalm 69. What is Psalm 109? Psalm 109 is a lament psalm where the psalmist laments the grief, the pain, the suffering that we experience sometimes at the hands of evil ones. And so Peter is wrestling with the scriptures, trying to make sense of the hurt. And that's why I say, during this interim stage, we need to deal with the messy issues. The disciples had to mess with this great betrayal of Judas. Now, we may kind of kind of gloss over that and think of, well, they crucified Jesus. That's just a small little part. No, for the disciples, that really rocked their world. They had been with him for three years. They even elevated him to keep the treasury. He was the one that had pedigree. He was the man Iscariot. Ish Kariot, man from Kariot. He's from the tribe of Judah. The rest of them are from the other tribes. They were Galileans. This man should have been it. They looked up to him. But he betrayed our Lord. And that rocked the disciples' world. Especially, too, when we think about they knew that Jesus was preaching about the kingdom of God. And this kingdom of God is going to include 12 thrones. They could not envision Judas being alongside them again. So they were wrestling with this pain of betrayal, of loss. And so they wrestled with the scriptures. The scriptures were the means by which they were able to process that trauma, that grief. So in the interim, we need to be people of the book. Ajit tells me I need to be less humble. But the book I just wrote is, to me, a great tool to get people to become more engaged in the Word. And like I mentioned already, I've seen so many examples of the techniques I talk about in the book, even here in this passage. That little brief mention of Mary, to me, that's a deja vu experience where we have seen this before. Mary was present when Jesus was born, a very significant 
peace, right? Also, Mary was where? She was at, according to John's gospel, when Jesus began his public ministry, his first miracle, Mary was there. Guess where Mary's again? Something brand new is about to happen. And Mary is present once again to kind of give some credence to what's happening, that this is a God thing. And the way that Luke structures the whole book of Acts is similar to how he structured the book of Luke. He has Jesus going up to Galilee and staying there and doing ministry. We have the book of Acts. The disciples are staying in Jerusalem doing ministry there. But then Luke has Jesus going out and going on what we call the travel journeys, going here and there. He's going up to Sidon, going different places. And what do we see in the book of Acts? The disciples then later on in the book start going out on their travel journeys. And then we have at the end of Luke, Jesus being tried, condemned. At the end of the book of Acts, we have Paul being tried, condemned. So basically, Luke is in one author, two books, but basically the same song. That those of us who call upon the name of Jesus are going to experience similar patterns, including, dare we say, persecution. And I think the early church, as rough as persecution is, I think they handled that fairly well. It was betrayal, though, that rocked their world. Just an aside here, I think if you've been around 180 long enough, you know some of the story for our pastor. He was a pastor up in Alaska, Anchorage, and he was betrayed big time by somebody he brought on to come serve alongside him who tried to oust him and push him away. It rocked Carl's world. But one of the things that I think is a mark of a mature minister is they get up again. The disciples' world was rocked, but they went on to transform the world. Book of Acts says they turned the world upside down. And one of the things that happened was when I pastored there, everything went fairly well over the next nine years when I was down in St. Louis. And then I received the invitation to put my application in to teach at Moody. I'd gotten my doctorate, and I was ready. And I interviewed with Dr. Bud Hopkins. He's now with the Lord. He was the first dean of Moody Graduate School. And I remember distinctly interviewing with him, and he said, where have you been ambushed in ministry? I thought it was a very strange question. I gave him that story. Come to find out later that he would not accept anybody as faculty who had not been ambushed in ministry. To him, that was an important mark of whether or not have loyalty and longevity. Because it's easy when you get the accolades, but when your world gets turned upside down, you see what stuff you're really made of. And folks, with Pastor Carl, we have the real deal. All right, other things, step up to the mic, importance of quotation marks in speech. We have Peter's speech here. That's going to sig uh, signal a key thing for the book of Acts. All through the book of Acts, there's going to be some key speeches. 
So pay attention when somebody steps up to the mic. Uh, location, I already talked about Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, the upper room. The upper room, lots of things happen in the upper room. Uh, also, too, later on in the book of Acts, some great miracles happen in upper rooms. So there's something about that particular space. But I want to talk about number three before we get into some so what's. Step number three for a community to prepare for the next move of God is that preparing requires identifying leaders to influence and make decisions. Now, Peter has already stepped up. Remember, what did Jesus say to him after his resurrection? Peter, feed my sheep. We see Peter doing that. He was already commissioned as a leader. But a leader can't do it alone. And so we needed to have others. But let's read Acts chapter 1, 21 to 26. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So now they're trying to come up with criterion as to who they will do to appoint in Judas's place. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. It was so critical, not that they'd just be faithful, but they seen with their own eyes the risen Savior. And they put forward two, only two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed. Again, step up to the mic. Look at this quote. You, Lord. I smiled when I reflected on the significance of this. We take it for granted. You, Lord. We always pray to the Lord. Well, what's significant about this? This is the first time that we have the disciples praying Jesus directly. Lord, remember, he's appointed them and they're in the process of deciding leaders. Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Wow, what trust. What faith. Lord, we need help here. It's easy for leaders to just kind of do their own thing, but no, they know they need help. They're asking the Lord to help. And then we read this rather unusual. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. It's like we have two qualified men. Lord, we can't distinguish. You decide. And so they, this is, sounds strange, they gave space for the Spirit to work may sound strange to us, but that's the important principle. They didn't just anoint, decide, choose on their own. They gave space for God to work and for God to choose. So I want to talk about some action points here before we leave here this morning, based off of these three steps that we see here in Acts chapter 1. Action point or uh, point of uh, turning is number one, make prayer and community with like-minded believers, a priority. And I'm going to get to the punchline right away. What's the action point that I want you to take? Come join us at 9.15 every morning right here. We have prayer in unity, practicing what this passage is all about. Getting together in one accord, praying, singing psalms, encouraging one another, asking the Lord to work in your lives and in our lives. 
We need to be people of prayer. Yes, we have gifted people. Yes, we can have talented this and that here doing things. But if the spirit is not in it, it does for nothing. And you know what? This was 10 days. Remember, this was day 40 when he ascended. Day 50 is when Pentecost happens. 10 days of focused prayer. And it includes women. Includes Mary. They're all together in one accord. And they're praying. They're waiting. They're expecting. That's what we see here. They're they're not static. They're not stagnant. They're not sitting stationary. They know there's work to be done, but the work they need to do right away is to pray and wait. That, folks, is critical. So come join our pre-service prayer time, 915 next Sunday, right here. And you can fulfill that step in our own lives today. Turning point number two, honestly wrestle with past trauma through the lens of Scripture. Judas' betrayal, as we've already talked about, was a deep wound. Now, remember the contrast. Peter denied the Lord three times, and yet here he is, a leader just less than 40 days later. So it's not about falling, stumbling, it's how you go about that. And so Peter, yes, he doubted, he wavered, but the Lord restored him. But what did Judas do? He betrayed the Son of God with a kiss. Turned him over to Roman authorities just for 30 pieces of silver. And so Peter used, like I mentioned earlier, the Psalms in applicational way to apply to this situation to help them deal with the trauma of this hurt of Judas leaving them. But I think there's also the subtle reminder that betrayal, as hard as that is, cannot hamper, impede the growth of this movement. Even death, even disunity to some degree is they were unified, but betrayal is another animal. The scriptures speak to us in brokenness and pain. I think about many of you who have adult ch children who have wavered from the Lord. The pain of what that is where you did all everything you could do to bring them up in a nurture and admonition of the Lord and now they for whatever reason, have turned their backs. That's pain. That's loss. There are scriptures to help you deal with that. Peter found them. You need to find your own. That's why the Psalms are a wonderful part of God's word. They give voice to pain. Even when you can't speak pain, the psalmist can be your voice. Read through the Psalms. Let that be your, your crying out if you can't cry out yourself. That's the example. Honestly wrestle using the scriptures to deal with trauma. And number three action point or turning point is support godly experienced leaders 
who inspire to lead and make decisions. We already see Peter. He's already at the, at the helm, kind of leading the charge. But they need others. And so they want to, in a sense, fill the slots of the positions that are needed, especially for the kingdom of God for the nation of Israel. And so they decided upon Matthias. But there was another man who was also qualified because he met the criterion, but he was not selected. And sometimes that's some of the more hurtful things in churches and ministries today. Who gets selected and who doesn't? Well, I've been bypassed. I've been overlooked. And that can be painful. It's not betrayal. It's just that it's great to have options. It's great to have qualified people. But you can't have too many people in leadership, or as they say, too many cooks spoil the broth. And so we need to have some semblance of authority, hierarchy. Yes, within bounds. Yes, with accountability. But there needs to be leadership. It can't all be done communally. We can't all communally make decisions. It doesn't work that way because we're so divided. Even if we're praying in one accord, we still need to have direction. So in this interim time, when God is preparing for the next move, we need to set aside people, men and women, who are involved in doing things, qualifying themselves. And notice, two of the criterion is loyalty. <laughs> they already saw disloyalty and longevity. Somebody who had been with Jesus from the start of his public ministry. There's wisdom in not putting your hands on too quickly, hastily upon leaders. You need to see them, as I've mentioned already, get ambushed. You need to see them, how they happens when their cup gets knocked over. And I don't know where you're at and where the Spirit of God is prompting on you. 180 needs leaders. We need people to help us. And what you can do now is be faithful, be loyal, help out, become an ambassador, show yourself faithful. Don't expect you're going to all of a sudden be asked to do great things if you haven't done little things. So prepare yourself. Make yourself available for service. And others will take notice. And others will come alongside to encourage and support you. That's just the way this community works. So we're here at 180. I'm one of the elders. We have some exciting things that we're thinking about for the future. God's next move. But we need to be unified in prayer. We need to be wrestling through scriptures to deal with. I so appreciated Shonda today bringing up in our prayer time about how do we deal with the pain of what just happened last weekend here? Do we just throw up our hands and... and uh, say with disgust what we saw, or do we do something about it? And then we need to be preparing people for service. Faithful people, loyal people, people who pray, who wrestle with the scriptures, who when they get ambushed, keep on getting up and starting over again. But I would be amiss if I didn't talk about another great movement of God that's coming on our timetable, not just for our church, 
But what did the angel say when Jesus was ascending? He said, he's going to come in like manner. You know what? Whatever we are planning to do as 180 Chicago pales in comparison to what the Lord has in store. But we could be what? Praying, wrestling with scripture, finding leaders and being prepared to be leaders before he comes. And I think that's what we should be doing in the interim. We know God is on the move. And don't wait for it to all just come literally on your doorstep. Take some action. Be in prayer, unified with others. Wrestle with the scriptures. Learn the scriptures. Read the scriptures. Find them to give your own voice for even the pain and the trauma that we experience today. That's what Peter did. And then line yourself under good godly leaders who are taking the helm, who are trying to take the charge to lead the kingdom against the kingdom of darkness. It's not easy to be a, a leader today. I think we all know that. And we need to pray for Carl. We need to pray for us as elders. And I thought the appropriate way for us to close our service here this morning is I'm going to ask our elders to come up. And I want them to pray. I want them to, whatever the Lord has laid upon their heart, because these are the ones that you have allowed to, as us, as elders, to serve you in this capacity. But you need to pray for us as we, as we pray for you. So, Jose, would you feed us whatever the Lord has in your heart? Lord, I'm just reminded of the song that we sang this morning, Christ is Enough. And as we come before you, as we pick up our cross that's before us, and the world that's behind us. God, we just bow and bend at knees and ask, God, that you will have full control of our lives as we wrestle with the scriptures, as we come before you, as we pray, because you are enough, Lord God. And you will meet us where we are as we put our trust and our hope in you. In your precious name, I pray, Lord. And Father, uh, I just pray that that we stay faithful with the little things that you've given to us, Lord. Lord, we don't ever want to forget you in just the very breath in our lungs, the beating of our heart, the family you've given us, the blessings you've given us, and the mission you've given us as a church, Lord. Lord, we know that if we stay faithful in the small things that you will add so much more to us, but for your glory. And Lord, I pray that prayer over our church in the spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, action point number one. You can start next Sunday. Join with us at 915 and pray. And I don't mean this, uh, if you want to get more equipped in the scriptures, I did bring more copies of my book today to get you more engaged. You can see my wife afterwards and she can get you uh, hooked up with one of those to get you more involved in using the scriptures. But then do pray for Pastor Carl, us as elders, as we really seek God's wisdom for the next move that God has for 180 Chicago. Let's stand together. Father, this isn't an upper room, but it's as close to it as it's going to come. We're one accord right now, and I hope our hearts are united and on mission 
for what you want to do in this church, in this city, in our own lives. So, Father, we pray that we'll be marked, first of all, as people of prayer. That we will be people of the Word, allowing the Spirit of God and the Word of God to prepare us for the next move. And that you will raise up men and women to serve in all sorts of capacities so that your work could continue with great glory and honor to your matchless name. So, Father, dismiss us now with your blessing as we go out to the places that you've called us to, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at our jobs, in our families. May we be witnesses of the power of God. We pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.